going to be kind of difficult. Um, there are some real challenges in it. I will land the plane where I am convinced the plane should be landed, although you may decide to go to a different airport, and that's okay, um, because there are good brothers and sisters in Christ who may choose to fly to Oakland rather than San Francisco, although it's in the same territory. You'll understand what I'm saying. All right, um, we'll all end up at church together, although we may have flown in at different airports. But um, be mindful of that, and I want to encourage you um, as, we, as we approach God's word today. It's good to see you. Um, let's uh, uh, stand together and uh, 1 Samuel chapter 21, beginning at verse 1, all the way through chapter 22 and verse 5. 1 Samuel 21. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech, the priest, and Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech, the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread, if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly, women have been kept from us, as always, when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there is no bread, but, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by the hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul that was there that day detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the, uh, the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. It will, um, if you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did he not sing to one... Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck, struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took, his, took the, these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gates and let a spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and his fathers heard of the, and all of his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the priest of Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go to the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Herod. 
This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we come to a passage like this, and I think it's easy for us to wonder exactly what's going on. Um, David, your servant, your anointed king, is, is running from place to place, and uh, Lord, it could be confusing, and it can be, Lord, something that we would want to shut our hearts and minds off to, and I just ask today that we would not shrink back, but Lord, we would lean into you. We would, Lord, want and desire your Holy Spirit to strengthen us as we study through this passage of scripture, that we would be mindful of what it is that you're teaching us, but Lord, also mindful of what you are encouraging those original readers to hear and why this was so important. Lord, would we be careful to see you in this text. Lord, would we see how this points to you ultimately, but Lord, also would you help us to see um, just the, the, the Godhead at work together for, uh, for your own glory in the affairs of man. And uh, Lord, I just ask that as your messenger today that you would allow me to speak faithfully and, and, and carefully and boldly, Lord, your truth that your children will be built up in the faith and strengthened, Lord, to do your will in their context for your glory. We ask in your name, amen. Having preached through many sections of scripture, I must say that this study in 1 Samuel has for me been one of the more difficult ones primarily because of the nature of the struggle and the situations that we run into. Um, that is true, certainly, in this passage. But we want to, for a moment, just take some time to review where we have come and how this fits into the context. So a little overview. Chapter 19, in particular, um, we will see... Saul's private mission to kill David. If you remember, the, the word that is used there in, in 1 Samuel 19 is his thoughts. Saul thought this, Saul thought this, Saul thought this. And then in chapter 20, we see Saul's semi-private. He's talked to his leadership, his servants. Now they are after David to kill him. And then when we get to our present text, uh, which is now um, Saul's public mission to kill David. It, it, it has become a public reality. People are aware of what is going on. So you see this, this progression. What started out in the heart of David now has turned into, sorry, Saul, thank you, has turned into a full-blown um, endeavor to kill David, and he wants everyone involved in this now. This pursuit is public, and it is ongoing, and will continue to be ongoing as we press on in this story. But it's also important for us to understand a little bit about the setting. David is a little bit more vulnerable now than he was before. He's a wanted man. He's on Saul's hit list. He has left his wife at home. Even his loyal covenant friend, Jonathan, the son of the king, cannot really help him anymore. He's been a faithful friend, but there's only so much you can do. And if you remember the end of our last chapter, they parted having discovered Saul's ultimate intentions. So he's a desperate man. He's on the run, and he is all alone. And his desperation leads to panic and fear and some behavior choices that appear to us to be questionable. 
Still, in all of this, God has not abandoned David. He has not changed his mind about David's kingship. He is uh, continuing to pursue his chosen and anointed king to be king. Even if getting there means going through the valley of the shadow of death. One could even label this section of 1 Samuel as the nine lives of David, right? I mean, just think about how many times Saul or his men have tried to kill him. But Saul is still pursuing David, but God is still at work in David's life. Let's just think about some of the words that come up in this passage. Uh, One of the words is alone. Another word is he's afraid. Another word we find is there is that he's fleeing from Saul. He's escaping from the Philistines. And all these words present to us David in a time of desperate circumstances. And he's going to be making some very difficult decisions along the way. Now friends, isn't that often how we experience life? It may not be quite as drastic as David. But life can often feel very desperate. We can panic rather quickly. And we can just lose, in a sense, our our bearings because of what we are experiencing. And at the same time, in the midst of all that, we can be faced with very difficult circumstances and very hard choices. We might look back on our lives and say, I really didn't do the right thing then. I think we've all been there. And we're often in the midst of those difficult circumstances thinking not just about our own skin, but of those people that we love, our family, our friends, or maybe even those whom our desperate decisions will impact. And choices always impact people. And sometimes we are ashamed or we're struggling with the impact of that. So all these things are bouncing around as we're thinking through our desperate circumstances. And so in our text today, we want to examine four ways that God is at work in our lives when we are desperate, afraid, and faced with difficult choices. Because we must be convinced, friends, we must be convinced that even if life is desperate, God has not abandoned us. And it's not enough for us to say that although life is desperate, God has not abandoned us. He is actively at work. So it's not just that he hasn't abandoned us, but he is actually at work in our desperate situation, bringing about his purposes for his glory. And so what we're going to see are layers of God's care that should seal our confidence that he is for us. Let's begin with the first one. And I'm calling this the hand of God's provision. The hand of God's provision. David has just departed from his dear friend Jonathan having been told that Saul the king is seeking to kill him. And he's thinking to himself, where can 
I go? Where can I be safe? Remember, they were in the field and they had this meeting and, and he departs. And where is he going to go? Saul is out to kill him. And it says in verse 1, then David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. Now why would he go to Nob? Well, he goes to Nob because Nob was the Shiloh of that day. It was the place where the tabernacle was, uh, was and the priests there were serving the Lord and worshiping the Lord, ministering before the Lord. And so he went there, and he went there purposefully. We'll find out in the text. He went there really for two things. He went there to get food, and he went there also to get a weapon that he was aware of, and that would be the sword of Goliath. But let's just hold that thought, and we'll continue reading. And Ahimelech came to David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? Now, why is Ahimelech trembling? And I'll give you this answer. The text doesn't tell us specifically. But there are some possibilities. It's possible that Ahimelech anticipates trouble because of David's presence. And we will ultimately see that that is something that is realized as we come to chapter 22 and the last part of it next week. Because Saul comes and he wipes out the priests, except for one guy, because Ahimelech actually helped David. So you can think, if this is public knowledge now, Saul is out to get David, and David shows up, and David's asking me a question, and he's asking for my help. This is a dangerous time for Ahimelech. So David explains, verse 2, and David said to Ahimelech the priest, the king has charged me with a matter and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. Now immediately, if you're reading this for the first time or if you've read this before, you and I are faced with a moral dilemma. What's the moral dilemma? Is David telling the truth, or is this a whopping lie? What's going on here? And if David is lying, how do we justify that in the context of the story and in the context of our own walk with God? And if he's lying, why does the text not seem to indicate that? Well, hold that thought. Ahimelech responds, verse 4. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, truly women have, uh, have been kept from us. As always when I go on expeditions, I'm, he's adding to the story now, the vessels of the young men are holy even when it is uh, an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence which is removed before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. So here we go. David and his men are on a secret journey for the king and need food. Right? I put men there in quotes. And Ahimelech offers the bread of presence 
And so this also seems to be a capitulation to God's requirements in the law because it was only supposed to be the priest that ate the bread of presence that was offered there in the tabernacle. So we're just, you know, dilemma after dilemma here in this passage. You can tell I've had a rough week, right? But thankfully, in Mark chapter 2, which I would encourage you to turn to, and verses 23 and following, Jesus refers to this encounter. And I think it's very interesting what Jesus says. Jesus is interacting with the Pharisees and he's rebuking them about their view and their practice on the Sabbath. And here's what he says, beginning at verse 23. On the Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to them, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Right? It's not lawful on the Sabbath. The law says you're not supposed to work. You're plucking grain. That's work. Hey, you should be doing that on the Sabbath. That's breaking the law. And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So what is Mark 2 telling us about the events in 1 Samuel 21? There's two things I think we can focus on here. The first thing is this. Human need takes precedence over ritual rules. Human need takes precedence over ritual rules. I want just to think about that, I'll explain it. You see, the Pharisees have become so preoccupied with keeping the law that they've forgotten the purpose and the intention of the law. They have an obsessive, compulsive desire to do what is right to the neglect of caring for people. This past week, JD and I took a plane out to Cleveland, of all places, and to go to a pastor's conference there. And of course, when you go to the airport and you take your bags with you, you're asked a ton of questions, right? You're asked a ton of questions when you go to the checkout counter. They say, hello, Mr. Phillips, how you doing today? I'm fine, thank you very much. Um, as they're doing that, they say, have your bags been in your possession the whole time? And of course, the answer is what? Yes, right? And then they say, has anyone asked you to take something on the, place, on the plane for them? And the answer, of course, is no. Then as you're going through security, if you have a carry-on with you especially, um, they're asking you the same questions. Is the bag you're bringing through security yours? Has it been in your possession the whole time? Then as you're getting ready to board, in particular, this happens on international flights, they will ask you the same question. Are these bags yours? Or or and, have these bags been in your possession at all times? And of course the answers to those should be, yeah, the, these are my bags and they've been with me the whole time. But imagine if you would, here's a person who is careful, they're godly, they wanna honor God, and they're at the airport and they're faced with this question and they, they are now in a dilemma because the first question here is, are these bags yours? And as you are just ready to get on the plane, you remember that the backpack that you have actually belongs to your wife. 
and that you're borrowing it for this trip because it's sturdier and your conscience now kicks in and you think, God wants me to answer truthfully. It's not my bag. And before you can begin to explain what you mean by it's not my bag, you're whisked away for interrogation. You wanted to be truthful. All right, then you come to the second question. And the question again is, have these bags been in your possession all the time? And of course, immediately you're saying, well, yes, they have. Well, wait a second, no. Actually, I was with a friend who's on this journey with me, and it's been a long trip, and I had to go use the restroom. And so I left the bag with him, and I went to use the restroom, and then I went to get some coffee, and then I came back. So in your mind, you're thinking about these things, and they say, well, have the bags been in your possession the whole time? Well, well, no, if I went to the bathroom, they didn't. So, no, again, you're whisked away because you're wanting to tell the truth, except you have to understand what it is that they're really trying to ascertain. They're really asking you the question, have these bags been given to you by someone else or have they been out of any care of those who are part of your group so that they could have been hindered with, right? But you see, the problem is, in that kind of a context, if we are going to apply the principles that the Pharisees are applying here, it's the letter of the law. If I haven't been with my bags, even for a little bit, I have to say, I haven't been with my bags. But there's a reasonableness to say, well, yeah, I left my bags with, my, you know, with the person who's with me, and I went to use the restroom. Sounds reasonable to me. Next time at the airport, try it out. Find out which one you like. It's up to you. I'll let you think it through, okay? But you get the point of what's going on here. So your obsessive compulsion to be truthful is only caused, in that scenario, most of the people there, more of a headache than needed. The plane is delayed, waiting for your interrogation, possibly. Your friends who are already on the plane are worried. What's happened to them? What do they do? They just said it wasn't my bag, it was my wife's, right? The gate agents are frustrated because they're wanting to get the show going here and here you are causing all this trouble. So in the context now of, of 1 Samuel, um, or I should say back in, 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 with the Pharisees here, then it will lead back to 1 Samuel. The intention of the law is that the Sabbath is for the people, not the, the people for the Sabbath. In other words, the law was to be kept. Certainly it was to be kept, but... When there was a real and genuine need, the law could be rightfully set aside. I think Jesus used the example. You know, if you have a, if you have a cow who you know, on, the, on the Sabbath falls into a ditch, you don't say, well, I'll wait till after the Sabbath to go get it. You know, it's, it's there going, you know, what do you do? You go get the cow. The law is there for a reason, but there's a reasonableness about it. It's for the people. And that's where the Pharisees got things distorted. That's why they were complaining. And so as we go back to 1 Samuel, you can understand, here is David, and he is now one of the heroes of Israel. We don't know whether um, Ahimelech understood whether or not he was actually the, the anointed king at that point in time, but he certainly is there, and he's thinking there's a genuine need. And as we go to the New Testament and we read back into it, we recognize that even Christ recognized the rightness of him giving him this bread to satisfy this need. Okay? You say, why all of that? 
Because it is a dilemma, friends, that we need to make sure that we're sorting out in our heads here. The law was never supposed to be something that was so unreasonable when being reasonable was reasonable, okay? And in this context, there was a, an appropriateness to allow David to have this food. So that's what Jesus was getting at. That's what he was commending the priest for in 1 Samuel, that he recognized the need of the moment and provided David with the food he was requesting. The second thing is Jesus is the new David. He is the Lord of the Sabbath, is what it says there in that passage. And the Sabbath ultimately points to him. And so the Pharisees, by focusing on the rules and the regulations, failed to see that the Sabbath pointed to Jesus, their Messiah. So the law points to someone or something, ultimately to the gospel and to Jesus. So here we have this first encounter. David comes asks for the food. That's what we have. We have this struggle, but Ahimelech gives him the food. And then, the next thing, just out of nowhere, it's just kind of a passing comment from the narrator, verse seven, while this is taking place, there's this chilling news that is revealed. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. And I think what he's trying to do here is to put him in the story because he's gonna come up later, but you just need to file him away. He is not a good character, all right? If there are any young ladies looking for a husband, don't pursue Doeg the Edomite, okay? He's not the kind of guy you wanna bring home to mom. All right, just file that away, and next week you'll see him fully blown in all of his sinfulness. But then, before David leaves, he is given a weapon. And just, you know, the walk through this little section here, he knows that the, the, the sword is there, um, and he asks them, do you have any, any other kind of weapons? And he said, well, this is what we have. We have Goliath's sword. And David's like, yes, give that to me. There is none like it. Give it to me. So this, this context is difficult uh, in the sense of David running and he's pursuing and he's going into, into Nob. He's asking for food. It seems like he's being deceptive. It seems like he's lying. It seems like there's a moral issue going on with the bread here as far as the law is concerned. But it's, it's difficult for David. It's dangerous potentially for all. But God, in the midst of it, has provi- provided his hand of provision because David now has his food and he has his weapon. In the midst of that struggle, in the midst of desperate circumstances, God has divided. He has, uh, he has provided. He has given David what he needs in that moment. Let's continue on and what, to what I'm calling, oh, I didn't put this up there, I'm sorry. Uh, to what I'm calling, I'll leave it up for a second, um, the arm of God's protection. The arm of God's protection. Verse 10, and David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. Now, if there is ever a biblical example of out of the frying pan and into the fire, this is it. Going from being pursued by Saul to Gath. Now, on one sense, it would make sense that David is fleeing. Why would he flee, Nob? Why would he 
escape? Why would he rush away? Well, if Saul is pursuing and it's public knowledge and he sees Doeg there, guess what? I don't want to be around. I'm going to get out of there. Saul's influence and his eyes were everywhere at this point in time. So as God's anointed king, David is now behaving as a shepherd. He doesn't want anything harmful to happen to Ahimelech. We're kind of looking back a little bit at at the first little section here. He doesn't want anything harmful to happen to him. Ahimelech doesn't know what is really going on. I'm gonna move ahead here. Um, is, Is David being sinful is the question here. We're just reflecting now back, back on verses one through nine. David's answer to Ahimelech is both truthful and also evasive, deliberately so, because he didn't want to give any reason for retaliation to come to Ahimelech. Now this is, this is where good brothers and sisters in Christ are gonna look at the same scenario and they're gonna come to different conclusions. Some would say he's definitely sinning, he's definitely lying. But I think David knows that he is the anointed king. He knows that he is destined for the throne. And he knows that wherever he goes, people are gonna be affected by that and so he wants to be careful not to involve Ahimelech too much in what's going on. Asking for food, asking for a weapon, shouldn't be that, too, that, that much of a deal. But telling Ahimelech everything that he's doing and what's going on may not be wise. Anyone here ever been given information that is confidential? And someone asks you a direct question about that particular person and you have the answer but you have to keep confidentiality and you want to respond in such a way that you cannot communicate to them that you know the information or indicate an answer to give them any information that they really shouldn't have at that point in time and so you say something as carefully as possible to be truthful but also to not tell the truth. You understand that? Why? because it's confidential. So you wanna be careful. Not everyone needs to know everything that you are doing. Not everyone needs to know um, the facts of what is going on. So, Ahimelech gives David both food and a weapon, but doesn't ask any more questions. He seems to understand. I mean, think about it. What kind of warrior would leave on a mission for the king without food or a weapon? especially one who's been the hero of Israel, who's been leading armies. What's going on here? And sadly, this is exactly how David reflects on Achish's death at Saul's hands. Look at chapter 22 and verse 22. And David said to Abiathar, he was the only survivor of Saul's slaughtering of the priests. He says, I knew knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. That is a weighty statement from a a man anointed, called, and destined to be the shepherd, the under-shepherd of Israel. That was the role of the king. He cared for his people. So it seems that at Nob, is, is a dangerous place for David to stay. 
Doeg the Edomite has seen him, and he may have put the priests in danger. So David flees Nob, still in the territory of Saul, in a bold move, possibly a reckless move, to the Philistine city of Gath, where Achish is the king. And that brings us now back into our text. This, you might say, is where David takes a proverbial wrong turn in the road, so it seems. Now, what do we find, or what do we know about Gath? Remember Goliath? He was the champion of the Philistines who was from Gath. And David is carrying what? Goliath's sword. Probably not a good combination, but why? What's going on here? I mean, did did David just run in a panic and didn't know where he was going and showed up here in Gath? Or was he purposely running into enemy territory to get out of the influence and the pursuit of Saul. And I think it's the latter. So Dave's fame was still on the lips of the Philistine people. Look at verse 11. The servants of Achish said to him, is not this David the king of the land? Interesting statement. Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his tens of thousands of Philistines. They know the song that the Hebrews were singing. And they're connecting the dots. Here's the guy that they were singing about. He is here. All right, guys, we're going to have fun with this. So David was in danger from Saul, but now in Gath, David is once again in a desperate context, and he is rightfully afraid. Look at verse 12. And David took these words, what he heard, He took them to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. David, knowing the danger of his situation, uses his wits and pretends to be insane. He draws graffiti on the doors and the gates. He drools all over his beard. Verse 14, then Achish said to his servants, behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Now we're just left with another question, right? Isn't this description or this deception, I should say, a sinful action by David. Shouldn't he have trusted the Lord to be sovereign and to get him out of this difficult and dangerous situation? Isn't it a sin to be deceptive? Shouldn't God's children always be completely truthful? But we must remember that Israel and Philistia are at war with each other. David's life is in full-blown danger And in warfare, deception is a skill and a tactic. I want you to think through this. There's a lot of deception that takes place in this world. My son's in the military. And I know when a soldier's in the military, they use deception as part of their skill. It's part of their tool. I would not want a soldier confronting the enemy to say, well, I trust a sovereign God. 
and I don't want them to know that I'm not here, so I'm going to step out right in the middle of the area so they can see me, and I'm going to say to them, hey, I serve the Lord Jesus Christ. I serve the God of this universe. He is sovereign, and I am totally in his care. I wouldn't get that far, likely. Why? Because that would be foolish. We recognize that would be foolish. In fact, in war, deception is part of that skill, and so you're using deception to defeat the enemy. I would hope we would understand that if we're in the context of that. Let me show you, just tell you another one. This is totally different, but it's a a, a way in which deception is excused or understood in our context. Have you watched basketball? How many of you are excited when Stephen Curry makes a move around his back and gets open for a free shot? What did he do? He deceived the person that he was marking in such a way that he could have a free shot. See, we we don't think anything about that, but that's a form of deception. It's a different kind of deception. Now, as a general rule, we should never lie. As a general rule, we should not be deceptive people. But in wartime, when people's lives are in danger, deception may be a means by which we can apply the skills that God has given us to preserve our lives and to preserve those whom we love. And I mentioned this last time we were looking at this. Remember the the Corrie ten Boom struggle? How there in World War II, her family was divided on this issue. She had a sister that thought, we have to be truthful if they ask us, do you have any Jews in this house? We have to answer, yes, we do. And the rest of the family was like, no, 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 we can't. And the sister went ahead and did that. And that person was taken and probably never seen of again. These are hard decisions, are they not? Now, you may disagree with how I'm coming down, where I'm, where I'm landing the plane, so to speak, and that's okay because good brothers and sisters land the plane differently on this. But I want to I show you something from God's word that will help us as we process this because there is a witness to us that we find in God's word that will help us think through this. And the witness is Psalm 34 and, and Psalm 56. So if we're taking the position that David was sinful, that David was wrong in both of these scenarios, that he shouldn't have done them, we have to deal with Psalm 34 and Psalm 56. Now both of them are recording the events that take place here in Gath. Psalm 56 is written at the time or very close to it. Psalm 34 is written later in life as David is reflecting on it. So let's let's allow these passages to speak to us. And I'm just gonna highlight some verses along the way to help us think through this. But I'm gonna use question and answer to kind of help us move through these texts, right? Question number one, what does David do when he's afraid? We're looking at Psalm 56 right now. What does David do when he's afraid? Here's what it says in verse three. David says, when I am afraid, what? I put my trust in you. Remember, this is referring to David when he is in Gath, when he's all feigning madness. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? So is he just acting 
as a madman? Is he just being godless in his reaction here? Is he resting on his flesh? Not according to uh, Psalm 56 and verse 3. In that passage, he's saying, I'm putting my trust in God. In other words, the events recorded for us are not an example of a lack of trust, but of David putting his trust fully in the Lord. Question number two. Does God care about David's fear and distress? Look at verse eight. You have kept count of my tossings. You can put implied there. You put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? That's a tender expression of God's intimate care. You put my tears in a bottle. You ever seen a tear catcher before? Long, slender. From antiquity, you see long, slender, kind of, like it looks like a, like a tall vase, but it's long and slender. It's a tear catcher. You put it up to your cheek and you catch the tears. It's a very tender, very intimate, very caring expression here. These are incredible pictures of God's tender care for his children. Next question, what does David think about God in his distress? Look at verse nine. Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know. God is for me. What does that sound like to you? Psalm 56 was the point of inspiration for Paul under the influence of the Holy Spirit when he says in Romans 8, 31, if God is for us, what? Who can be against us? Now you just gotta think, this is in the context where he's in, in Gath. And he's going through this time of fear. And he's putting his trust in the Lord by feigning madness. Question number four, what is David's conclusion? Verse 11, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? What can Achish do to me? What can Saul do to me? Doesn't this change our perspective a little bit? Everything in this psalm tells us that David was trusting in the Lord. Psalm 34. Psalm 34, a couple of questions there. What does David do when he's in trouble? Look at verse four. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Well, how did God deliver David from all his fears in Gath? According to the record we have in 1 Samuel. He delivered him by his feigning madness and Achish the king saying, I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna touch him. You have to understand, in that culture, in that context, those who were insane, those who were mad, were considered to be touched by the gods and they didn't want anything to do with them. In other words, they didn't want to harm them. Question number two, what confidence did David have in God? Verse seven, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them, describing what's happening to him. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. 
This is a prophecy heading toward the crucifixion. Verse 21, affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. So why is God putting me in difficult circumstances ultimately as we're just reflecting on these two Psalms so that all you can do is put your trust fully with all your might in the Lord? You ever been there? I mean, you're like, what can I do? And you're doing all you know that you can do with the skills and gifts that God has given you. And you may say, I'm not sure if this is the right thing to do, but I'm, I, you know, and I'm trusting God and I'm doing what I can to, to trust him. And he's put you there so that you would be in that place and hold on to him. And what it appears here based on this is that what David was doing there in feigning his madness was not him being sinful, but him being wise as a serpent, skillful, So it's clear from Psalm 56 and 30, uh, 34 that David was fully trusting the Lord during his time in Gath. God's provision, friends, comes in many forms. It isn't always in the ways that we expect, is it? You know, when we, when we pray for God's provision, often we have in mind how he can do it, right? God, we need for you to provide, so would you do this, 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 and this? And God ends up doing this thing over here. And you're like, well, yeah, I didn't think about that. <laughs> Thank you. You provide. You take care of us. And God's provision may come in many forms, but it's our priority to put our trust in the Lord who cares. So, let's move on to the finger now of God's providence. The finger of, of God's providence. We've seen his provision We've seen his protection in unusual ways, but now we see the finger of God's providence, chapter 22 and verses one through four. This really is divided into two little sections, and there are two sections here that really all come under the, the heading of refuge. So I'll put the first one up here. It says, David departed from there and escaped the cave of Ag- uh, to the cave of Agilom. So he escaped from the city of Gath to the cave of Agilom. But now, he's in familiar territory. This cave, the cave of Agilom, literally means the cave of refuge. So when you see cave, you see stronghold being used in this context, it's talking about this cave, and it's a cave of refuge. And again, it's helpful to consider two more psalms that David wrote when he was in the cave now. Psalm 57 and Psalm 142. I would encourage you to read them yourself. Both deal with the enemies pursuing and him uh, you know, trying to get out from under their grip and them continuing to try to trip him up. But we'll just take maybe one or two verses from each psalm. Psalm 57. Psalm 57. First of all, says this. Verse one. Be merciful to me, David says, O God. Be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes what? Refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. So it appears that David saw beyond the cave to his ultimate refuge in God. The cave was a refuge, but he knew that behind the cave is a providential God who is caring for his child. 
and he would remain in the shadow of God's wings. Psalm 142 and verse five says this, I cry to you, O Lord, I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Once again, we see this theme of refuge. The cave is David's refuge, but the cave is nothing if God is not his refuge. You get that? So there are things that we trust in, and there are some things that we trust in that maybe we should trust in. I mean, how many of you are seeking to be careful with your finances? So you're trusting in being careful with your finances. That's a good thing. But behind that is God caring for his children. All right, you want your kids, and you want to be healthy, so you're caring for yourself. And you can do all the right things, but behind all of that is God who's caring for his own. You understand that? So there are things that can be good that are places of refuge, or things that we're doing, but, but it's God ultimately that is the one that is providing and through his providence. So this, this, this cave or refuge would be a place of refuge for others too. Um, we see here that his family find out where he is. They catch up with him at the cave. It says, and when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. So with David... The object of Saul's anger, David's family also is not safe in Bethlehem. We, we understand how, how kings wipe out families that they do not like, especially if they feel threatened. And Saul certainly felt threatened. Just refer you back to the conversation he had with his son. If the son of Jesse is not dead, it's going to affect you and your household. Okay? So it's not surprising that his family comes to find David and finds him there in the cave. But they were not the only ones who heard. There were three groups of people that rally to be with David. And here we find David, the commander, or as some passage, some texts say, the captain. Look at verse two. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. So David, the anointed king, is now made a captain or a commander of this ragtag group of men. Notice the descriptions there. Men who are also in distress. Men who are in bondage to debt. Men who are bitter in soul. It's an encouraging picture. Hey, Rod, I want you to plant a church in the Bay Area. Here's what you have. Um, first of all, I'm going to give you those who are distressed. Thank you. Appreciate that. Those who are in great debt. Thank you. I'll use them. Um, those who are disenfranchised and bitter at life. I'll definitely take them. And by the way, that's going to be your church, and I'm going to grow that church. And that's, that's the sense of what's going on here. These are the ragtag rabble, the motley crew, so to speak, that God is bringing David, who will ultimately be the 600 mighty men. And friends, there's a sense in which this is pointing forward to us. Oh, we don't think, <laughs> that's not a description of us. It, couldn't, it wouldn't be us. That is exactly it. And if you're a, someone here and you're not a believer, you're struggling, and maybe you're thinking, what is this Christianity stuff? Or maybe you're saying, I can never qualify or be justified in thinking that I would be good enough to be a part of God's church. 
let me tell you something, you're not. And the reason you're not is because none of us are. This is actually a very good description of us. We are a motley crew of sinners gathered together under the grace of God, having been drawn to Christ by his kindness, by his grace, birthed because of his breath that gives us life, because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. Listen, there's nothing about us that is worthy of saying, oh, I'll pick you. It's all because of God's kindness. It's all because of his grace. That's who we are. And it's a healthy place to be, guys, because we are all needy people. We are all people who have really nothing to impress one another with, although sometimes we think that we, we do. I think it's fair to read this as pointing forward and ultimately to Christ himself as captain, king, and leader of his band of outlaws, ultimately his church. Now, not only is it a place of refuge that is a cave, it's also, uh, the idea here is there's a place of refuge and it's the Moabite city. David, if you remember, I believe, is a faithful shepherd at this point in time who cares for the sheep under his care. I think Abimelech is one of the examples of that and how he interacted with him. And certainly here with this motley crew coming to him. But in, in the midst of all that, we find him and his parents. Look at verse three. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab and they stayed with him all, that, all the time that David was in the stronghold. Now what do you think the reason is that the king of Moab would let David leave his parents under his care and protection while David remains with his motley crew of men in the stronghold? Do you remember who David's great-grandmother is? See, David's father was Jesse and his father was Obed, and Obed's father was Boaz, who was married to who? Ruth, whose mother-in-law was Naomi. A Moabitess. There's a kindness here. I just want you to think through this. When we think about the providence of God at work, who would have thought that all the trouble that Naomi went through, all the, the, the death, all the suffering, all the poverty, with a loyal daughter-in-law who didn't have to come with her, but did come with her, who stayed with her and entered back into Bethlehem on a low uh, cast, so to speak, in society, went through all of that, ultimately all the little twists and turns so that Boaz would take her as kinsman redeemer, that all of that would be laying a foundation for David to show up in a Moabite city and say, will you take care of my mom and dad? And having familial legitimacy to do so, and to do so with confidence. That's providence, friends. We don't always know how God is at work, why he is doing things, but he is weaving his threads of providence even in our lives in such ways you get to a situation like, huh, small world. See, that's, that's our kind of refined way of saying 
God's providence was at work here. He weaves it and does things in such a way it's like, well, how did that happen? That's amazing. Now, isn't God amazing in his providence? Go back to the book of Ruth. Go back to the book of Ruth, if you would, please. I want to just link some things from Ruth to 1 Samuel and then ultimately to the New Testament. Luke chapter 2 and verse 12. We've touched on this just a little bit, but I've left it for now. The Lord repay you for what you have done, this is Boaz speaking, and a full reward given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Chapter two, verse 12. Then Psalm 57 and verse one. We read this already, and you might remember, you might see where I'm going with this. It says, be merciful to me. David's speaking, oh God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge till the storm of destruction passes by. Then jump ahead to Matthew 23 and verse 37, where Jesus, the greater greater David, is speaking over Jerusalem. And here's what he says. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, there's a picture here of God being this mother hen who cares for his children, and when those children gather under his wings, he provides them protection. They are in refuge under those wings. They are cared for under those wings. This past week, just so happened that as uh, we were listening at the conference, Tim Keller was speaking on Psalm 91. The same expression is used there and he talked about the fact that in antiquity there's even the story that, that a hen would gather the chicks under their wings like if there was a fire coming and that, that, that hen would, would lay herself over those chicks and be willing to die for the safety and for the care of those little chicks. And friends, there's a sense in which here what Jesus is saying when he's looking at Jerusalem is, listen, if you gather yourself under me, I will protect you. From what? From God's judgment. And how would Jesus protect Jerusalem from God's judgment? By being the hen, so to speak, that went to the cross and bore the wrath, the judgment of God on himself. And in so doing, would protect all those who are his children under his wings. So when David says, in you I find refuge, in you I am placing myself under your wings, that is no small statement. And it looks ahead 
to the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. David here is trusting in God. He is leaning on his great grace until, verse three of 1 Samuel 22, he knows what God will do for him. The finger of God's providence is a gift for every child of God. His providence is always at work in ways that we won't always see. But we can be sure that he is at work during our times of distress. He weaves his will and purposes in the intricate affairs of life to bring about ultimate, his ultimate plan. You know, this, this past week again, I'm just bringing some illustrations from my time, but I was sitting on the plane next to the window with the wing in front of me. If you've ever done that, when the plane is descending, the flaps at the back go up. And when the flaps at the back go up, it's not just like this smooth kind of, uh, you know, metal frame. What you see when the flaps go up is all this intricate detail of, of um, pipes and things that are all going in there, hydraulics and all this kind of stuff. And you realize there is a lot going on here but ultimately, I just want to get to my destination. My friends, the same thing is happening when when we think of God's providence. There's a lot of stuff that he is at work doing, and only he can do it, weaving his purposes and plan through the affairs of life, but he's allowing us to get to our destination safely and freely. His providence is always at work. His providence has been planned long ago. He's already thought of you in your distress, he is at work, why? Because, going back to Psalm 56, I think it was, God is for us. And although we may find ourselves in physical refuge, we must remember that ultimately, he is behind it, because he is our place of refuge. Which brings us then to our last aspect, last way that God is involved in our distress. And that would be what I'm calling the voice of God's prophecy. The voice of God's prophecy. So in our times of distress, we've seen God at work. The hand of God's provision, where God is giving us what we need. And oftentimes we think we need a lot more than actually what we need. There's the arm of God's protection watching over us in our distress. There's the finger of God's providence working out his plan. Now we want to see his work through the voice of God's prophecy. And this is where David leaves his parents in the safety of Mizpah, the Moabite city, and he returns to the cave where he is met by a new prophet, at least new to us, by the name of Gad. And incidentally, we'll see Gad as, all, as the, the prophet that David now is going to lean on, okay? And what does Gad say? Well, if Gad is speaking as the prophet, who ultimately is speaking? God is speaking, all right? So it's not a typo. What did Gad say? It's also what did God say, right? Both are true. Look at verse five. And the prophet Gad said to David, do not remain in the stronghold, depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went to the forest of Hereth. Isn't that interesting? The very place that David considers to be safe, his stronghold, his refuge, is the very place that the prophet Gad says, David, you must leave. So God comes to David and gives him special guidance and direction through his prophet. God is not silent. Hear this. God is not silent during our times of trouble. 
he has already spoken. So we would do well to be seeking God's counsel and advice recorded for us in his inspired word. What happens a lot of times when we're in distress and we're in trouble is we seem to want to bypass the word of God and we want to somehow hear from God in other mystical ways. So we'll look up into the sky and we'll see you know, clouds in the form of whatever it is we're struggling with and we'll come to go, oh, God spoke to me, you know. Listen, God has already revealed himself in his word. He has counseled us for our times of distress. And my counsel to you is don't wait for your time of distress to be the time when you're solidified in what God says about times of distress. Learn about that ahead of time. So when distress and difficulty and trial comes, you can apply God's truth. You can hear God's word. You can preach God's truth to your heart in the middle of that time of distress. We need the certainty of God's revealed word to speak to our hearts in those times of distress. And God has spoken clearly, and God has spoken certainly. What did David do with the voice of God through the prophet of God? Well, he listened. He obeyed. He took it to heart. See, unlike Saul, who was not willing to listen when the prophet spoke, he wanted to do his own thing in his own way. David now doesn't question the command of God, although it seems strange to him. He listens to the counsel from God. And in our times of distress, we are to listen to what God says too and be obedient, trusting as we obey. Now friends, this is an intense section of scripture, isn't it? I mean, this is not easy just to kind of, you know, bounce through in a devotional way. There's a lot of hard things for us to wrestle with here and you're probably still thinking, all right, well, I'm not sure about this. I wanna encourage you to go back and to to think through these things for yourself. But I I also wanna just finish up here with with a few concluding thoughts that just will help us move a little bit. And these, these flow out of our, um, our times, not only in, in chapter 21, but also from the Psalms that we've been reading that, that give witness to what's happening in chapter 21 22. But I wanna, I wanna begin by asking you a question. How do you respond in times of t- trouble and distress? You see, you can learn a lot about a person by seeing where they turn or to what they run to in times of trouble. It reveals a lot. You know, when you're stressful, you know, maybe you go shopping. No elbow nudging right now, okay? When you're stressed, when you're, you're having panics, whatever, maybe you go to the refrigerator. Or maybe, maybe you go to the computer, maybe you go to porn, maybe you go to movies. Because all different places that we run to apart from God. And God is screaming at us here, listen, where do you go when there is a distress in your life? That's a really important question. And, and, and we get a model now from David about turning to God in those times. Here's what I want to leave you with, okay? First of all, cry out to God for his help. That's what David does. Each of those Psalms, he's crying out to God, have mercy on me. Give me perspective. Give me understanding. I need you. I'm desperate without you. I want to place myself under you. I want to trust you. He's crying out to God for help. Secondly, trust in God's 
care. Trust in the Lord. Trust what he says. Take it at face value. Listen to it. Believe it. The third thing we find in the Psalms is this. Praise him for his faithfulness. Thank you, God. Thank you for what you have done. Thank you for what you are doing. Thank you for revealing yourself to me. And finally, rest in his power and grace. Rest. See, ultimately, that's where God wants us to be. Oh, chaos may be going on all around us. But we can find rest in him. I want to finish up today just by reading Psalm 57 with you. Just think through all that we've looked at today and just get the bits and pieces that would fit into the story and just think through how David is coming to his Lord. Be merciful to me, he says, verse one, O God. Be merciful to me, for in my soul, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purposes for me. He, who send, he will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts. The children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. I mean, isn't that, here I'm in this in distress. Be exalted, O God. I mean, there's, there's a sense in which when you're, when you're leaning on God and you're resting in him and you see who he is and you get a picture of all these things that he's doing, his providential care and his power over your life, you can, you can praise him. Verse six, they set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen in, into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. Uh, I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Just go right back to the beginning of the psalm. To the choir master, according to Do Not Destroy a Mictam of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. This is David reflecting on his distress, but ultimately praising God for how he is at work in the midst of his distress. And he wants to shout it from the rooftops. Now friends, we must be careful that we are not Eeyore Christians just moping around, what's God doing? Life can be hard. There can be seasons of difficulty and sometimes it's overwhelming. But God and his hand of provision is always there. His arm of protection is always there. 
His finger of providence is always there and his voice of prophecy, his word speaking into the context in which you're in is always there as resources, as helps, as, as layer upon layer of, of, of strength that God gives us during those times of difficulty. He wants us to see him. He wants us to exalt him. He wants us to praise him and he wants us to trust him. Would you do that today? Lord, thank you for your kindness, Lord, in giving us a text like this where we're, we're wrestling, Lord, with, with difficult issues. We, we, we know our sinfulness, Lord. We know the ways in which we are tempted to lie or to deceive and do things that would not honor you. And so, Lord, there's a sense in which we resonate with some of the things that are in this passage. And yet, at the same time, we can see or how, how a child of yours can, can trust you even in difficult circumstances because you are a great and mighty God. Lord, help us to step back and to assess where we are today. Are there things, Lord, that we need to praise you for that we have just taken for granted? Maybe we have not been leaning on you, but we've been leaning on our own strength. Maybe we've just wandered away. Maybe we're feeling safe in our own stronghold when that really is a substitute when you really want us to come and to be under the care of your wings. Oh Lord, you, you, you offer yourself to us time and time again, to your children, to those who would affirm your son Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior and yet so many times, Lord, we choose another path. Would our hearts, Lord, be stirred back and drawn back to where they need to be? Would our souls trust in you? And would you be our God and Savior afresh today? We ask in your precious holy name. Amen.